This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Bitheads. They are a staple in the tech community I come from and have done incredible work over the past 18 years with some of the largest brands in the world, including The Simpsons, Tapped Out, Box, Optimal Payments, The New York Times, among many, many, many others. All told, they've built over 500 solutions from enterprise to entertainment. I'm proud to have them as a part of Untether.tv. Please support us by supporting them. Go to bitheads.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Untethered.tv. I'm your host and founder, Rob Woodbridge. Internet of Things. It means so much to so many, and oftentimes the definitions of Internet of Things actually is not the same, depending on the person you talk to. You ask a million people what it means, you'll get a million different answers, and we're here to cut through that BS today. We're going to get a deep dive into what the Internet of Things is and what it isn't. And also we're going to take a kind of a, a long view uh, of what the Internet of Things will be. My guest today, live from Boston, though his office is in Chicago and in Toronto, but he admittedly spends most of his time in San Francisco. Don Deloach, who is the CEO of a company called Infobright at infobright.com. Don, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, Internet of Things, where are we? What's, what, what's your, you know, after I've opened like that, what's your definition and what's your impression of what the IoT is as we sit right now today in 2014? Um, well, in a nutshell, it's, it's connecting lots and lots of things and people in just a connected world. So if you look at, uh, if you look at Ericsson, you know, they're characterizing it as the network society. Uh, you've got the industrial internet, the internet of everything, the web of things. You've got all kinds of nomenclature <laughs> people are using to describe this. If you look back uh, uh, a couple of years ago, you know Tim Berners-Lee uh, sort of began pushing the W3C, uh, and they were calling it the semantic web, right. and, and that's now evolved to web of things with the guys at the W3C. So there are a lot of characterizations of it, but fundamentally it speaks to connecting everything, you know, arguably on a, on a peer-to-peer basis, but connecting everything into a way where we have much, much, much more information about the world that we live in. It's amazing because, you know, where do you think we are in this continuum of IoT? So much talk about it, but, I mean, I'm still not walking around uh, bumping into sensors everywhere I go, and my car isn't talking to my house, and my fridge is certainly not talking to, well, sometimes it talks to my belly late at night, but um, it's not talking to my smartphone and to the grocery store. So, I mean, where are we in this continuum of IoT? Yeah, I, I, th I think we're in some ways early on. Um, actually, in a lot of ways, we're early on. In, in some ways, we're... In some ways, this isn't so much revolutionary as it is evolutionary. There are, there are things that are out there that have been out there for years, things like fleet management, where um, you have the, the sort of predecessor concepts that were put into place, but it's been evolving. So like uh, manufacturing floors, for example. If you think about you know, automation on the factory floor has been happening for a long time, but um, it happened in silos, and it wasn't based on using things like IPv6 networks to get down to the individual devices and allow the devices to broadcast to each other. So the, uh, the, the, the drop in prices and uh, the increase in sophistication of both sensor technology and communication technology 
have come together in a way that allow a lot of these linkages to be established and this, this information to be ingested in, in ways that it just wasn't possible before. But in some cases, in a lot of cases, they're building on concepts that were most definitely out there in play before, but didn't have the capacity to evolve to the extent that we're now seeing them. The other thing about that is, like any good idea, you know, you know, somebody doesn't, you know, sit around all day and, and all of a sudden say, uh, "Hey, I'm going to build a, a, you know, a, a nuclear warhead or whatever." It, it, it's it's it evolves over a series of ideas, and and you know, one good idea tends to beget another. And I think what we're seeing now is the, the massive acceleration in terms of the pace of this technology because a lot of these concepts really are um, sort of bleeding out into the industry at large and you have a lot more people spending a lot more time thinking about what could be and out of that is born this level of innovation that is starting to mark this trend that we're seeing. It's, it's a fabulous trend. But it, it is one that evolved over time. You know, it's interesting. If you, if you, if you go back and uh, look at the sort of history of the universe, as, as you will, if you, if you think about, uh, you know, it's like some of the you know, scientific research that's done. And you chart the, chart the history of mankind, you know, in terms of the universe, you know, life as we even remotely know it was in the, in the span of a day, if, if the you know, life of the universe is in, represented in a day, you know, the, the, you know, man as we know it and life as we know it happened like in the last few seconds type of thing, right? So I think we are kind of on the precipice of seeing this blow open, but we're not there yet. And the catalyst had to have been, you know, I, I know people have thought about this for a long time. And as you said, it's like it's been slow burn, so to speak, you know, but it, and then as technologies evolved, and things happen like the smartphone arrives and uh, microprocessing gets down to a point where it can fit into this, where these are smart, smart, smart machines. And then the sensors get smaller and smaller and smaller and more affordable. And then there's power, uh, you know, power management. And, and um, so, all you know, these are just the seedlings for this industry, I would say. And, and now the ideas are starting to, to percolate. But how do you know? what is a good idea versus what is a ridiculous idea? Because I start to see a lot of ridiculous ideas or I see a lot of like retailers saying, you know what would be great if we could interrupt our customer when they walk in the door and bring them over to this corner to sell them a pair of jeans. Well, their customer saying, I don't want any of that, but why are you doing that? So, you know, how, how do you decide what's a good idea versus what's not a good idea in this space? Because that's where we are right now, it seemed to me. Yeah. Well, I think people are going to, in some ways, uh, decide that based on, you know, their, their intuition. And sometimes they're going to decide that based on the empirical data they're able to collect and what that data is telling them. And, and sometimes they're going to decide that because they think it's the right thing only to find out it's the wrong. God knows people have done stupid things with technology in the past and, and people will continue that, that trend as well. But, I, I think that, you know, if you think about it, you know, there's a desire to make so many decisions based on the underlying empirical data, but there are a lot of instances where it's just not practical to do that, and, and in fact, a reliance on the data only sometimes can cause you to make the wrong decisions, because there are inherent assumptions about the data you're collecting. I think the, the Nate Silver book, um, 
uh, that, that talks about some of the, uh, with signal and the noise, talks about some of the, um, the biases that go into how people treat data. You know, if, if now we're dealing with 100 times the amount of data, we have to be all the more careful about the biases that we attach to the data and the models that we're putting in place, or else we're going to have this wonderful dysfunctional world. And um, I don't think that's what anybody wants either, but it certainly is a, a, a consideration. Well, that's what you guys do at Infobright, right? You, you bring data, good data or the right data in front of your customers. Why don't you talk about what you guys are doing there? Yeah, the, the beauty of our platform is it only accepts the right kind of data. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have the artificial intelligence built in to, to do that. No, Infobright is really a purpose-built platform for storing and analyzing machine-generated data. And uh, as you can probably imagine, one of the reasons we're so excited about the Internet of Things is there's a hell of a lot of machine-generated data that, that goes along with that. It doesn't mean it's exclusively that. And in fact, if you think about it, uh, even from an IoT standpoint, from a security standpoint, you're talking about you, you know mountains of uh, video feeds, mm -hmm. uh, telemedicine standpoint, all kinds of imagery. But even the video feeds and the imagery have a lot of metadata that's associated with it that needs to be understood uh, in order for it to be meaningful. But it, 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 at its most basic level, just think about mountains of sensor data coming from like you know from. Uh, uh, power grids coming from sensors underneath the streets, coming from the OBD units inside of a car, you name it. There's all kinds of uh, messages being ingested or, or, or you know, readings being taken and data being collected that constitute the, the baseline of information that we, we know as the Internet of Things or, or will come to know as the Internet of Things. So, so we care a lot about this uh, without making this into a commercial because I don't want it to be fundamentally the reason we care so much about it is Infobright was really based on a body of mathematics called rough set mathematics and we use this this certain approach to build a metadata layer that is the maximum amount of information represented in the minimal amount of space that's put into memory and the, the net net is it makes it it's kind of ideally suited for storing machine data. The, the principles behind the mathematics allow it to operate because the characteristics of that type of data are uniquely suited for the way we build this metadata. And the characteristics that the result of that is it takes a, a very small amount of hardware and um, resources to, to stand one of these up. And it, it basically requires no administration to keep it up and running. And if you're deploying, you know, sites where you're putting them by cell towers all around the universe or, you know, you're putting them in cars and stuff, the less database administration you have, the, the more um, uh, elegant the solutions you can deploy will be. So, so that's why we care. But rest assured, we really do care. And a lot of our, uh, a lot of our customers are, are some of the names at the forefront of pushing this, you know, pushing this trend. Where are we? when it comes to big companies, small companies, companies around the world, media, grasping what it is that we're talking about here. Because I get the sense, you know, and, and where we are in this kind of in the spot of limbo because we kind of, you know, for the most part, I think we understand the web. Maybe we don't understand what the implications are. Some companies are ignoring it. You know, there's still those, but that's a 20 year in technology. And then mobile comes along like a, like a shot out of hell. 
in 2007, 2008, and even back in, you know, with BlackBerry, for those of us that carried a BlackBerry back in the day, or an iPack, a compact iPack in the late 90s, we understood this, the implication of mobile. But, uh, you know, from a company perspective, hey, not a lot of people understand how to implement mobile strategies or mobile tactics into their business to better their business. Uh, they keep it separate from everything. You know, there's a whole bunch of challenges there. So a smaller group of a subset of people understand mobile, web, yeah mobile and then you've got this thing called the internet of things which is a layer on top of stuff where connected nodes and devices and sensors so i gotta understand where do you think we are what's the level of education out there around the internet of things and its potential yeah uh i think we're cracking the surface of um of understanding on a, on a widespread basis we're not there but there there, mm -hmm. there are there are examples creeping into kind of the lexicon of our everyday life, like Fitbits. Okay, so you, you know, yeah. go exactly. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Vanna. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Um, uh, there are uh, projects underway that are pretty cool. So, like, if you go to the city of Amsterdam, uh, they have spawned this uh, joint government-private uh, initiative. And they get behind projects. And last time I looked, which has been a while, uh, there were 43 different initiatives for, you know, the smart city initiative that, that has all kinds of you know use cases uh, assigned to it. Uh, Barcelona is, is fairly progressive as well. Uh, there was a, a project up in Ann Arbor that was run about um, using broadcast signals for, for cars to talk to each other, just like planes do today. Which, by the way, brings up another thing. Some of this technology has been around for a long, long time. But, but only used in very, very specific cases because, because the technology was justifiable in the context of airplanes because you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars per asset, you know, in some cases, or you know, tens of millions per asset. Um, and, and it justified the expense of doing it. But, but something doesn't go mainstream until you take what is technologically possible, and let's be honest, a driverless car is technologically possible today. We all, everybody knows about the Google car, right? But, but nobody's going to work in their driverless car right now because while it's technologically possible, it certainly isn't practical. And you know, I, a long time ago, worked for Sybase, and one of the founders, Bob Epstein, said something that I have never, ever forgotten. And he said, technology, and I believe him to be 100% right about this statement, um, you know, technology becomes meaningful in terms of, of monetizing that technology and truly making an impact when you take what is technologically possible and you move it into the realm of what is practical. And while we don't have driverless cars today, we probably will at some point in the future. And uh, I, I think that it's cracking that barrier between what is what is possible and what is practical that will get us there. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a great. That's a great quote. And and you know, there's that human factor at the same time, right? So, uh, you know, I think that we can we're, we're pivoting towards driverless cars by letting our cars, uh, you know, do a parallel park for us, right? It's these natural pieces, like, you know, Internet of Things is the the understanding that this is a sensor, and then maybe later on not feeling so, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know, so shy or sheepish or or insecure about having a, a, a you know automatic. Uh, um, door locks based on this proximity to your smartphone, right? So those kind of things, I think there's a natural step that happens here. So, you know, when, when you talk about 
this concept of the Internet of Things, it's so broad and it encompasses so much. And you wrote this great, or you're still writing this great, I, I don't know how many pieces, I don't know how many parts this is going to be, but I've, at this, at, at the moment we're doing this, there are 10 parts of this on your blog. I implore everybody to go read it. It's at infobright.com and they just click, click on the blog uh, link. But you talk about these separate silos or separate pieces that make up the Internet of Things and their impact. And the first one you talk about is is the stuff that you guys are very familiar with is big data um, and, and big brother issues. All of this data that we are collecting these, from this, from everything, from glass, from my smartphone, the carriers, the banks, all of this thing all of a sudden now comes in and creates a composite. Uh, as close to me as actually being me. What 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 is it about big brother big data and and how how does the Internet of Things play into this as a as a challenge for for us as humans? Well, uh, at a minimum, it contributes a, a, an exponentially you know large and growing amount of data about us. But you know, I have to laugh because you know when the whole NSA thing broke. Everybody was like, oh my God, you know, who would have thought? <laughs> okay, but what do you think all the, how do you think these ad tech companies are making money? You know, there's stuff that's being collected about everybody. And, and, and the funny thing is, if you ask most people, um, you know, how comfortable are you with this stuff being collected? Most people will say, I'm not comfortable at all. And then if you ask them, you know, do you like the benefit of, the tailoring of this technology or, or whatever and you know like 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 how Facebook works for you or, or whatever oh yeah absolutely right well you, you can't have it both ways although you can sort of split the difference in some instances but in order for you to get the benefits of technology adapting to you and your wants and needs and lifestyle the ecosystem out there has to understand something about you. If you're invisible to the ecosystem, then the tailoring of the ecosystem to meet your needs isn't going to be possible. So there's a give and take. That said, I think there's a couple of things that are, are probably worth paying attention to. Number one is, um, you know, pe people, as, as we go forward in time, more and more of the constituents of this technology are younger and younger. And, and now you have people who have grown up never knowing anything but, you know, Facebook or whatever. And, and the, it's not nearly as discomforting to some about the idea of this information being out there because they would never assume otherwise. And so I think that the, the overall view of what information exists out there in the online world about them is changing as as we grow older, if you will, and, um, and and that's one thing. Now, the amount of this data that's going to be out there for the Internet of Things now all of a sudden reaches a a extremely large level. Let's just take a couple of examples. Um, let's say that the instrumentation in your house talks about everything, you know, can tell everything about how you, use how you use technology, how you use your information systems, how you use your uh, appliances, when you turn your heat on, when you go in the door, when you go out the door, you know, so there's a massive amount of information being collected about how you exist in your sort of home. And from that information, there are certain patterns that can tell things about you. Um, 
you know, where you live, obviously they'll know where you live because you've got, you know, geo. But um, what time you come home? Yeah. What time you come home. I, like, for example, I, I read an interesting article about determining sort of uh, uh, religious affiliation based on when you're in your home and when you're not in your home based on how you uh, raise or lower the temperature of your environment, okay? And, and these are, this is the kind of pattern detection that a lot of people don't think of because it's fairly subtle, and, and yet there, there are certainly things that can be done with that. Then, the, then all of a sudden, if you combine, well, if, if, you're, if you're generating uh, uh, messages coming off of something like Fitbit, or if your, the OBD unit in your car is talking about your driving behavior and everything, now all of a sudden you're getting this massive picture that is of course complementing the picture that's already out there about your browsing behavior and you know, what you post on, uh, on Facebook, which never seems to amaze me at what people are willing to post on Facebook, by the way. But so all of a sudden there's this, this very robust footprint that you have left about who you are, what you like, what you don't like, you know, what your habits are, etc. And I think that some people will be more comfortable with that than others. I think that there are probably going to be lines that will have to be drawn, but for the internet of things to be widely accepted, those issues have to be resolved. Um, I'll, I'll pivot over, if I could, to a companion discussion, and that is, who, who owns that data? Mm -hmm. Who owns that data? Who has the ability to monetize that data? How will they monetize that data? Is the owner of the data actually the steward of the data? You know, so you go on, you know, like something like something to say on Facebook or, or Google for a second, you know, they'll give you the ability to control how your data is used to a certain extent. So in, in a way, you become the own, your own steward of that data. Um, and, and by opening up certain things and closing down others, you, you can govern to what extent is your, your experience tailored to meet your specific needs. But the, but the flip side of that is to what extent does Nike or Apple or whoever have the ability to understand what that digital signature looks like and then respond to it. And I think one of the questions that's going to have to be resolved is, is how all of, that, all of those governance issues are dealt with. And, and, and let's just think about this. I had a long discussion with various members of my family the other day about IoT-based advertising. You know? and, and I think something came out with Google about Nest and there is this, you know, everybody, you know, panicked because all of a sudden, you know, am I going to have an ad on my thermostat, right? Probably yes. You know, I was talking to my wife about, you know, are people going to have an ad on their refrigerator? And, you know, maybe it's something as blatant as, you know, um, you know, buy this type of orange juice or, or maybe it's something more subtle like, you know, for your dinner recipe tonight, you know, this is what you should get. But it's it's driving you towards a certain brand, uh, but but there's value there. And, and, and then the question is, well, you know, well, why would that be the case? Well, m maybe somebody's putting the refrigerators out there at a subsidized rate in exchange for accepting the advertising, or maybe there's the uh, the the Nest Plus that's the the advertising less thermostat. But right. there is going to be monetization of this data in ways that we probably should be thinking about right now because surely the opportunity will exist. And, and these are all issues that are going to have to be resolved. And I mean, is anybody asking these questions or, or are we still in this um, land grab 
at this moment right now where companies are going to be testing these things and you know you, you know it's never say never about this kind of you know advertising on every wall in your own house but are people thinking about this because i'm very cognizant i go to ikea and and uh I'm, I'm in this we're in this generation now where they're asking me for a postal code and i ask them well what are you going to give it what are you going to give me for my postal code right, right? it's not right. free if you want it it's for something that is of value to you so what is that worth to you and and right. you know the cashier just looks at me like i'm insane and so does everyone my entire family does as well but but we are in this reciprocal world where if I'm going to give you a piece of data, I expect something in return. So are we going to start to see this point where where if you want my data, I'm willing to partition a little bit of for you, but you're going to pay me. I get a discount on my on my hydro or my gas bill or my, you know, whatever it might be. Are we going to start to see that kind of world emerge? And is anybody thinking about this stuff other than you, Don? Uh, well, first of all, absolutely other people are thinking about it because I'm not... Uh... I think I have a limited set of original ideas, but I read enough things to where I'm, I'm certainly willing to, to try to pivot off good ideas that other people have. And so most of what I've written in my blogs probably is a function of good ideas and, and thought-provoking concepts that I've seen from other people who know a lot more than I do about this. But you know, the, I think the answer to the question you're asking is time will tell. Um, the concept of, of what, what's in it for me and the whole democratization of the data it is going to be um, thought out over probably a longer period of time than we want, but it's going to have to be reconciled for the Internet of Things to truly reach its real potential. But here's the question that's going to at least be asked on some level. How are, how are those determinations going to be made? Are they going to be made in the courts? Are they going to be made you know, in Congress. So, so not to, I, I'm not trying to put a political slant on this at all. This is an observation. In the U.S., you know, with the Citizens United um, decision where corporations are people and they, they can spend as much as they want, you know, weighing in politically, that, you know, if, if you're, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar company, you have a pretty strong advantage in terms of trying to push a political agenda and subsequent legislation in your direction. So does that mean that ownership of this type of data will land in the hands of seven different companies? I don't know. That has been that question has been posed. And I think the answer should be something that everybody cares about. I'm not arguing a position at this point because I don't really feel I know enough to, to, to weigh in with an intelligent answer yet. There's too much that I feel like I don't know. And the scary thing is, um, I, I think I operate on what I call the 7% principle. And that is, if you're talking about something, and 99% of the people only know 2% about, about the topic, and you know 7%, then you look like an expert to, to most of the people. But the funny thing is, that only makes you feel worse because the fact is you probably know you only, only, you, you only know 7% and you're aware of the people who, who know 90% and you're forever trying to make up that gap. And that's kind of where I feel like I am now. I'm <laughs> in the Internet of Things to be constantly exploring and I, I feel like I have a ways to go. There are some people who are really smart people about this technology. Um, you know, uh, Daniel Avodovsky wrote a book called uh, The Silent Intelligence, a recommended reading for sure. Uh, Mary Cronin at uh, uh, Boston College 
Um, I, I mean, the list could go on and on. There are a lot of people that are really smart people that are pushing the envelope here. Um, I think it's really important for us and for my company, and so I am forever trying to learn. But these are questions that are going to have to be addressed. And, and if I look back and I, and I think, so where is the money opportunity? Part of the real, part of the, in my view, part of the most immediate place to monetize the Internet of Things is going to be in those areas that will otherwise be the biggest impediments. Security, privacy, governance, security in particular. You know, nobody's going to have a sense of humor about the power grid in New York being taken out because a 16-year-old whiz kid decides he wants to hack into the grid to impress his girlfriend, right? Um, I mean, this is serious stuff. And I mean, it's almost like, uh, you know, dealing with an automatic weapon. Um, you know, it, they're designed to, to have so much more power but you better be careful where you're shooting it because you, know, you can do a lot of damage really, really quick. And I, I think that the power of the Internet of Things is a, an amazing, has a, holds amazing promise for society. And I mean society on a global basis. You know, what, what the Internet of Things can mean for developing nations and, and poverty and all kinds of human issues, telemedicine, um, incredible stuff, incredible stuff. But in order to get there, we have to overcome some of these logical and it should be fairly obvious impediments. But I think we will. And, well, but I think money to be made by doing that. I, I think there is as well. You, you know, but when when you talk like that, uh, you, you know, uh, you talk about security and you talk about I, I, a lot of people. I don't know that a lot of people really understand what you mean by security because what you're talking about is literally if if everything is on the network, then everything is exposed. To the network right and and the breaches that we've seen even the last couple of days where there's been denial of service attacks and small like evernote was hammered and twitter was hammered with uh with tweet deck but these are a small scale so what twitter's down so what evernote is down big deal if the entire grid is down and you don't have power big deal if it becomes a target because it's on the network right so that's what we're talking about when we we're talking about security it's not about getting in your house it's about making sure that you have power and water and that you are actually nothing is compromised on the on the networks and and so when we talk like that and then governance of that i mean are we talking about decades generations before this emerges as something that will actually happen? Or are we talking that, that you know, like, like much of what's happened in the last 15 years or 20 years with the internet is that, you know, we go to a point, breach, we change, breach, change, you know, it's, a, it's an evolutionary scale, but, but those are just credit card numbers. You know, in, I say that in layman, in simple terms, those are, not, those are credit card numbers, not, you know, a dam opening and flooding a city, right? Right, okay, so, so for starters, I think it's probably a misconception to assume that when you talk about the network, it's a singular entity that encompasses everything. Uh, I think a lot of people's view is that that is exactly what it will be. I think from a practical standpoint, it's highly unlikely it would ever be that. I think the more logical rendering from an architectural standpoint are, are, are going to be more like uh, peer-based networks or mesh networks. Um, and, and that in and of itself offers a level of um, security and, um, and capabilities around governance and protective capabilities that uh, are going to be necessary to, to implement this technology on any kind of practical level. The other, the other concepts are um, things like computing on the edge where 
you're ingesting data, but you're not necessarily moving the data itself. You're probing the data for the required knowledge you need to gain from that and maybe creating a metadata layer, but you're not necessarily trying to move 50 petabytes of data across a network. You are, you're operating more out on the edge because as the scale increases by a hundredfold or, or a thousandfold, um, it's no longer practical to follow what we, what we viewed as you know, conventional technology norms for how we're dealing with this data. Right. So you got to think things. I'll give you another example. The way we ask questions about the data will have to change. So, um, you know, if somebody if somebody's trying to do complex segmentation in order to do marketing advertising and they say, you know, I want to know how many people out on the network uh, between the ages of 19 and 25 are using either Facebook or Instagram uh, for more than 12 minutes on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday from an iPhone 5 or 5S. Okay, so now you've got a lot of dimensions that are built in the query. Well, if the, if the data set that you're operating over is uh, you know, 100 terabytes, and you're at asking very, very complex you know, segmentation type queries, you know, that might take you, you know, 45 minutes to get, a, get an answer back. Well, if, if that query is part of an investigation where you're, you're going to try to chain together the results of the questions you ask in order to get to an answer. Think of like a detective trying to solve a case or something. Um, if it takes you 45 minutes to get an answer and you're chaining together 19 queries, that can be problematic, especially if you don't even know if the question you're asking is the right question. And so the whole idea of, um, of intelligence sampling. So let's say I want to ask a question and I want to be able to get an answer that has a high degree of confidence. Let's say I, I want to, what I would call a 98-2 type scenario where I want to have an answer that's 98% accurate, but I want to use 2% of the resources and take up 2% of the time. This type of technology it, it is possible and, and it will become more and more the mainstream because it's all about taking what is possible and moving it into the realm of practical. So if it takes me, if it takes me 36 hours to chain together my queries to figure out whether I want to, you know, take a certain action, and I can collapse that into 15 minutes because now I'm operating at the amount of data on the Internet of Things scale. Now all of a sudden I've gone, I, I've achieved my objective in a fraction of the time for a fraction of the cost because I've adapted how I interrogate the data in the first place. And again, these will all be offshoots that people will acclimate sooner or later to in terms of, of dealing with this trend. Do you ever get to think that we get to the point where the, where the, the aggregate of data um, is trendable? You know, I mean, because right now, you know, I think of, of data as being spoiled, right? You know, the data that we didn't use yesterday is no longer relevant because there's so much more data today than, than and it dwarfs what happened yesterday. So do, do are people's concerns, we talk about security, we talk about internal security and our own security, are people's concerns uh, right when it comes down to the individual that at the end of the day, um, this data will look for, for patterns and flag suspicious patterns or flag patterns that are not appropriate for the population. So this is around governance, this is around things around the cities, but do, will it ever get that smart where it'll be able to pick that guy that, sh that is a little bit shady? Oh, I, I think it will. Yeah. Um, it, it's not, but, it, but the use cases go way beyond that. So, so think about um, uh, telemedicine and you know, if we can gather, you know, you know, 
things that the, the, the breakthroughs, you know, based on the human genome project and things we know there. So if you start combining all this stuff, um, the, the ability, the ability to perform more sophisticated analytics grows and grows and grows, especially with the amount of data. Um, and from a time standpoint, yeah, it may get old by the time you, you read it, but if you can, if you can look back over a year and you can chart the seasonality and you can chart, chart the trends, um, you know, there's value to that. If you look at, if, if you look at the types of analysis people do on the data they collect, it, to me, it falls into basically four realms. There's the operational analytics, and, and that's answering the question, what's going on? So I have a KPI dashboard, and I'm sitting in the executive suite, and I want to know, uh, you know, how many carburetors are being produced in my carburetor plant, right? And, and that's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very accepted form of analysis, and, and it's a way of life for almost every company to some extent. Then there's the investigative analytics, and that's basically staging this data in a way that you can plumb the data. You know, tell me about this, this, and this. And once you get the answer back, you go, ah, now tell me about this, this, and this, but only limit it to Thursday afternoons, and then what's happening. And, and again, it's the detective solving the crime. And what you're trying to figure out not is what's going on, but why is it going on. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the third realm, which is the predictive analytics, which, which is basically saying gather all this data, and based on what we've now been able to ascertain about why this happens sometimes, let's develop mathematical models using things like R or SAS or whatever. Let's, let's develop models that tell me what's going to happen. You know, based on the data I'm saying, what's going to happen? And the holy grail with the fourth realm, which I think is probably the most important for many of the Internet of Things use cases, is machine learning. And, and that's the whole concept of... And there's probably six or seven, probably more than that. I, 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 um, I, I know very little about this other than if you, if you look at what machine learning ha holds the promise of doing, it's the idea of I can sort of map, you know, tell the machine this is good, this is bad, this is what the behavior I want, et cetera. And all of a sudden you're building an adaptive model that takes this data and basically feeds back this is what should be happening. And I think for the Internet of Things, especially when you consider it's not just a smart grid or a smart city and smart traffic lights or a, a smart emergency management system or a weather system or whatever, it's all of these various siloed systems working in conjunction with one another. And that's where the breadth of the data and the richness of the data can then be um, cleansed and made available for consuming applications where things like machine learning can take a number of different dimensions into account and then you get the smarter, how do I detect the nuances, how do I adapt when I see it, you know, what other factors need to be weighed in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I do believe, like, I, like I've been saying before, this is, this is technology that has the ability to change life as we know it. And, and I think it ultimately will, for the better, in so many ways. There will be negative byproducts of this that we'll have to contend with, and there will be impediments that we have to deal with. But at the end of the day, I think there's more good than bad, and it's probably a fight worth fighting. Are there any impediments? I mean, impediments, the things that we're concerned about right now, things that we've talked about forever around security and privacy, are those the biggest impediments, or are there other things, aside from that human 
slowness in adopting new things. Uh, is there anything yeah. else? Yeah, I mean, there are some some sort of nuanced ones. I think that um, there was part of the impediments are going to be um, having the people who put these systems in place being willing to rethink how they do things. Um, like I said, it's one thing to be to interrogate a terabyte of data with a complex query. It's another thing to interrogate you know, 50 petabytes of data with a complex query, especially if that data really sits in different types. You, know, you might have some in Hadoop and some in MongoDB and some in Oracle and some in Zybase and some in InfoBright. Um, and, and if I have to really reach across different types or different flavors of, of, of data, how do, I, uh, how do I reconcile all that? So, and, and then on top of that, if that's really, really what I'm doing, it's probably going to be prohibitive to ask questions in the way I used to ask them. So how do I adapt? And so I think some of these architectural considerations, uh, some of these, some of the query paradigms we use to extract knowledge from the data are all going to have to be adapted to accommodate the changing world. And there may be people that are slower to adapt than others. But again, that's just one more nuanced impediment, but it's an impediment nonetheless. What about uh, this concept uh, that I hear quite a bit around is that, uh, you know, we need an Internet of Things operating system. Do you take uh, credence in that? Um, I do. I do in so much as, well, I mean, let's, let, let's, let's be honest. Um, there, there are mobile device operating systems out there now that make what we do on smartphones possible in ways that trying to have a one-size-fits-all operating system for every device that we use wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, you know, here again, so my company, my company specializes in machine-generated data. So clearly I am a proponent of specialized component technologies in the ecosystem. I think that there are vast gains to be realized by having that level of specialization, especially as your overall scale gets greater and greater. Because you benefit from the from the specialization, um, it, it, you know, uh, in correlation with the uh, with the scale. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I do believe that there's a place for that. I, I think that there's absolutely, um, you know, emphasis growing there. I, I know that one of your prior guests was was pretty consumed with that, and I think makes a very good case for for it. And I'm, uh, I think that that's what we're going to see. You know, yeah, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, as you as you just layer these things on, you know, four years ago, not many people would ever have considered a company like Blippy back in the day, which, you know, exposed all your credit card information to yourself, but you could see the patterns and then it would it would gather that patterns. But credit card companies have been doing that since credit cards were ex in existence. Same with mortgage companies. They can tell you when you're going to get divorced, right, based on all the data. Well, up here in Canada, and you know, is I mean, we're so reliant on the debit system. Interact up here knows more information about me than anybody does. And they can predict exactly what I want to buy tomorrow based on the 20 years I've been using a debit card, right? And we don't even think about that kind of data. Interact, to me, is one of the biggest data treasure troves in Canada. They, we should be, they sh that's their next business. It's not the transactions. So, you know, we start to see this. We see the in-home piece, which is a considerable piece for us as uh, human beings around what happens inside of our house and our patterns and the things that, uh, that will be gleaned from those patterns. But now we get into a car and the car now has, uh, is collecting data and our smartphone is collecting data with us all the time and the things we wear are going to collect data. Now we're going to pass a lamppost that has a sensor in it and a stop sign or a red light that has a sensor. We're going into stores that have sensors in it. So, you know, all of a sudden there is isn't a moment in time 
right? Uh, even I, one of my guests, Johan Soren, talked about, hey, listen, f from a mobile health standpoint, you're going to urinate into the toilet and it's going to do your blood set test samples there and send it off to your doctor. So there isn't a spot, except for maybe in your bunker, right? Uh, that you will be away from data collection and data distribution, we'll, we'll say, and the intermingling of that. So there's got to be, when we think about what does this mean for us as humans down road, like you, you talk about these far ranging implica implications of the Internet of Things. When, when we're in that world where everything uh, mesh networks, there's enough security, we've got the governance, uh, you know, we're, we're paying by Bitcoin or Deutschcoin, whatever it might be. What, what are some of the implications of all of this? Is that, you know, do we have to start over a society in the woods in order to be able to, you know, regain a little bit of our own independence? Yeah, I, I certainly don't know the answer to that. Those are the right questions to be asking. I mean, if you really think out um, uh, about the implications of that, it, it will start to um, put pressure on the, the existing uh, uh, political lines that are drawn. Um, you know, when is a state a state and why? And you know, what are the what are the thresholds that? What's a currency? Still, What's a currency? Right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And then, um, and then, where do you draw the line in terms of how you deploy um, medicine and healthcare? Because you know, with all the things you know, for example, let's just say there's an outbreak of a certain virus, and you know, today it goes to the CDC and uh, um, you know goes into you know uh, Switzerland and and everybody is at the World Health Organization and everybody mobilizes to try to send Dustin Hoffman out to to fix it right in his mask. Um, what happens when there's an outbreak of a very very specific virus and in in 45 seconds there's a map of everybody who's going to be susceptible to this. And now you have now what you want to do is keep those people from um, contracting and spreading it. And and what lines do you have to cross in order to affect that type of um, you know mitigating strategy? And at what expense? And and at what level of you know privacy invasion? And these are all sort of you know questions that are going to be asked on multiple levels. But but. But the technology and what the technology is capable of doing will, will demand that society in some form or fashion be asking these questions. And, and I think whatever the answers that society comes up with, it, it's going to give way to a different world than we know today. Yeah. I truly believe. And, and I, I, you know, if you ask anybody, like I just put you on the spot there, that's the right answer because anybody who says that they know is full of crap, right? Because there's just no way to predict where this goes. But I do know that these are the questions, as you said, as long as we're asking the right questions and consistently asking the right questions, I think that uh, at least it puts pressure on it. And I believe maybe not this time around, maybe not in the U.S. next time around, maybe not in Canada the next time around, but at some point, these questions are going to be political absolute political pillars in order to be able to get elected uh, you know uh, as uh, officials whether that's a government in canada or the united states it's going to be fascinating to watch oh my god and you know the whole idea of denial is no longer an option because you were there you were smoking that crack pipe you know whatever it might be right because at some point that kind of uh, that, that that data will be available you won't need somebody's iphone for that anymore 
Yeah, Don, this has been fascinating, man. Uh, I would love to have you back on as we uh, kind of explore this and see theories come to reality. If you don't mind, I would love to have you back on for another episode. I would welcome it. I certainly enjoy this discussion. I, as I joke with people, this is my favorite topic, and I'll talk to anybody about it. And as a result, I've noticed I don't get invited back to cocktail parties very often. <laughs> well, this is the right place to come. This is it. <laughs> the only thing we're not we're missing is our cocktails. We should do this at, at a point in time, yeah. maybe once together. Uh, where should we send people? Should we just send people to infobright.com and then to get them to, to take a look at the site and then also go click on your blog and, and do some deep reading? Is that, is that and good? if they it, post a comment and tell me why you disagree. I, I'm, you know, it's funny because... I think the thing that helps us advance the most isn't to get a lot of people around that agree with each other, but it's to get people who are willing to think objectively and, and disagree, but push each other to be better. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of technology, um, but I don't ever presume that I or my company has all the answers. And but it's a it's a worthwhile discussion to keep having, and so so we we enjoy having it. Uh, Don, couldn't have said it any better. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate your time. I certainly appreciate you having me and have enjoyed the, the time and look forward to being on again when it, when it works out. You will be. We have been speaking with uh, Don Delocho, who is the CEO of Infobright. Go to infobright.com. As I said, they're based out of Chicago and Toronto, but he spends most of his time in, in San Francisco and he's sitting in Boston. Uh, I appreciate the deep thought of uh, what you've done here, Don. I really thank you so much for being a part of Untether.tv. The folks, you guys out there listening, watching, you made it this far, this long into the show. That means that you actually liked it. You really liked it. And I thank you so much for doing that. And if you did, why don't you go and give it a review, a rating, wherever you got this, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, my website, go to Don's site, tell people about it. Go and leave a comment there. Let them know that you found out about him and uh, Infobrite on Untether.tv. Give me a five-star rating. Whatever it is, it's good currency. That's my currency. That's my money of things, if you will. Please go and do that. And we will be back next time on Untether.tv. Don, thank you. Thank you.